Hello. Um, I'm Joe Green. Uh, this is uh, Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And um, first of all, I want to thank Mark because at the very last minute, I told him that one of my oldest and dearest friends was running for chair of the Democratic Party and was going to be in town. And he's like, just cleared the deck, made time on stage. Um, so I'm a native Angelino, LA enthusiast. Got my LA shoes and my LA socks on. Um, and a uh, serial entrepreneur, started a company called Causes, nation builder, a group called 4.us, which does um, advocates for immigration reform. And um, Pete and I have known each other since. We were undergrads at Harvard together. Um, he then went off to be a Rhodes Scholar. We worked together on the Kerry campaign in Arizona, so we've been through political defeat uh, before. He then went back to his hometown in South Bend, Indiana, ran for state treasurer, got his ass whooped, um, then ran for mayor of his hometown, which he won. Uh, while he was mayor, he was a naval reservist and got sent off to Afghanistan where he was driving around in a Humvee with a gun and uh, working on Navy intelligence. Uh, then came back, came out as gay, got reelected, and as far as I can tell, he farts rainbows. Um, so I'm really, I think it's really exciting you know, to be able to have a conversation about you know, where the country is. Um, so I wanted to start with uh, Pierre is, Pete is a mayor of a industrial city uh, in the Midwest, and as Pete likes to say, there's this bizarre sort of fascination with his part of the world now, partially because if you look at the election, the biggest swing were these counties that went in, in the Midwest from Obama uh, to Trump. So I thought maybe start by asking, like, help us understand kind of why this shift happened, why the, a lot of the folks in your part of the country who did support the president then went and supported Trump. Yeah, so uh, first of all, really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. This is kind of heady stuff for somebody from, from the middle of the country. And the only other time I can remember going uh, to this many meetings back to back in white tents was in Afghanistan. So these are much more <laughs> pleasant circumstances. Um, I've got to say, Trump, I, I don't mean to claim that we saw this coming, but uh, it is a little less surprising if you're in my part of the country. And one of the things I think uh, folks miss when they're assessing what happened with Trump is there are a lot of people in places like Indiana who are under no illusions about what kind of person Trump is. We keep waiting for the, the next outrage that's finally going to show he's not a good guy. And there's a lot of people in my part of the country who already know he's not a good guy, and they voted for him anyway. And they did that because they wanted to support an outsider they disliked uh, rather than an insider that they disliked. Um, there is a level of fear, there's a level of uh, fragility that makes people just emotionally, at this moment, want to vote to burn the house down. And I think that's why, what's happening around us. Uh, and it's, uh, it's resisted a lot of the simplistic explanations that have come. Um, but we've got to pay attention to the sorts of people who did vote for Obama and then turned around and voted for Trump. And, um you know, the other kind of thing we talk a lot about is sort of the motivation of kind of the deindustrialization of America. And, you know, we talk a lot in these circles, they were just talking on the previous panel about the pace of automation, the pace of AI. And I'm curious kind of how you've seen that play out in a city that's been experiencing industrial decline for 50 years. Yeah, the week I got into the race for mayor, 2011, Newsweek had a spread on 10 American dying cities. We were one of them. That was how I entered the mayor's race. Um, and yet we were able to win with, with a message that said, look, uh, to all the people who are waiting for some version of Studebaker to come back and employ 20,000 people at a time, um, that's not going to happen. And that's okay. 
And there's several reasons it's okay. One reason is, I, I know this is being presented as a choice, like are we going to cling to manufacturing or are we going to do new things? Well, the reality is a lot of the employment, a lot of the new employment and a lot of the most robust firms in our area are doing manufacturing. They're not, now they're not doing you know, easily commodified stuff like, uh, like tool and die. Um, but we've got a firm that makes machines you would think would be too big to ship. They're the size of my house. They've got proprietary friction welding um, capability. They go to Mexico where they're on a line for Fords. So the workers making those cars are Mexican, but the workers making the machines those workers are going to use are in South Bend. So we do have opportunities. We just got to recognize that manufacturing is profoundly less labor intensive than it used to be and always will be. The handful of jobs it does create are good jobs, and I'd rather have 20,000 people employed at 100 firms, 200 at a time, than have the risk of having them all in one. Meanwhile, we got data centers, new industries that, um, that didn't exist when the last Studebaker rolled off the line. And I, I think we need to embrace a future where uh, we have those kinds of opportunities and we're telling people, look, it's not going to be the same, but that's okay because you do have a role in the story of globalization and automation that is not that of victim, which is how a lot of people are being told, including by our politicians on our side of the aisle, is that's the only place they belong in this story. Yeah. We, it's, it reminded me of a conversation we were having previously about sort of retraining yeah. and j job retraining and kind of how people respond to that. Yeah. People in my part of the country, uh, at least the ones I know, do not want to hear about your retraining idea. And I know it's fashionable, and at a certain level, policy-wise, it's not wrong. But the way we talk to people, I mean, if, if you're middle-aged and you've been making good money with a high school education on the line in manufacturing, and we're going to tell you that you're going to work on computers, which is the phrase they always use, you know, work on computer, whatever that is. They go, they take the classes, they do what we tell them to do, uh, and the next thing uh, they know, they're competing with uh, somebody with the same training who's, who's 20. And at the same time, they've lost something much more important than their income, which is their, their identity. I mean, it's just part of American culture that, you know, what, what's the first question we ask you is, what do you do? Right? Um, we've got to make sure that, yes, we, we, we create different career opportunities for people who are going to be displaced by what's happening in industry, but we do it in a way that doesn't threaten their identity. Uh, and I think that's where we need to, to have a new vocabulary about opportunity, about making sure that workers are able to win, not yeah. telling them that they're, they're sort of busted and we're going to rewire them <laughs> and then they're send them out in the market and they'll be fine. So, you know, even if, frankly, if Hillary had won, the Democratic Party would still be in pretty dire straits. We're right. in the last, I think it's 90 years ago that we had yeah. as low in terms of number of state legislative seats, governor's seats, statewide offices, Congress, Senate. How did we get where we are? Give us some, like, some perspective. Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of issues that brought us to this point. Some of them are structural. Some of them have to do with a system that really is rigged. Not in the Donald Trump way of, of you know, busloads of illegal immigrants voting it, that doesn't happen, but, um, but who can look at the way our districts are drawn and not say that our elections are nakedly rigged most of the time? Politicians choose their voters rather than the other way around. And that didn't just happen. It happened as the consequence of folks on the other side of the aisle patiently and cleverly over decades building majorities in offices that uh, aren't talked about at very high levels, uh, offices that are not sexy, county sheriff. They know that's the pipeline that gets you the state legislature, that is the people who actually draw these districts and affects the way our Congress is made up. They have been much better 
at laying groundwork and thinking more than one cycle at a time. And the Democratic Party, which is supposed to be the smart party, uh, frankly got outsmarted in a lot of ways by those maneuvers, and we're paying the price now. Good news is it's not too late. As a matter of fact, 2020 will be the next U.S. Census and the next redistricting. And we need to work on two things at once. One, making sure the way districts are drawn is fair and nonpartisan. And two, knowing that there's a lot of places where that's just not going to happen in time, making sure we win in the places <laughs> where it is partisan so that we can uh, break these Republican supermajorities. I mean, living as a mayor in Mike Pence, a Democrat mayor in Mike Pence's Indiana, I've seen firsthand what happens when you allow a state house supermajority driven by ide ideology to roll over everybody, and it's, it's not pretty. Well, and speaking of the deck being stacked, you're in one of the states that's sort of been on the forefront of voter suppression or voter ID laws. Like, how has that affected things? I mean, when, so I work in the county city building. It's a 14th century, uh, sorry, 14th story. <laughs> um, it's more of a 50s. Ancient, ancient Indiana. Yeah, no, the, the architecture is more East German, maybe. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's our county city building, and we, and we love it. And the lobby of it is an early voting site. So for a month leading up to election day, on my way to work, going to the elevator up to the mayor's office, I'd see these people lining up uh, to vote. And there was also a big sign on the door that said stop. It was literally a stop sign. It says stop. Here's all the terrible things that are going to happen to you if you do anything wrong, and if you get it, don't bring your ID, and, and so forth. It's telling people not to vote. Because there's one party in American politics that does better, as a rule, when fewer people vote. And we've got, already got the lowest voter turnout of, or one of the lowest in modern society. Um, the voter suppression is not symmetrical. It has consequences. And we've got to face it and confront it and talk about it. Uh, and we've got to recognize that voter suppression is voter fraud. Right. Not that it is a response to voter fraud. Well, and the scary thing is the worse that gets, the harder it is to undo. That's right. It, right? Like, it's self-reinforcing. People forget that, you know, even in this last election, Democrats overall in the House won, I think, a couple million more votes than Republicans altogether in the House. So because of the way districts are drawn, the Republicans have a massive uh, lead in the House. So, you know, Peter and I got to know each other, I think, debating political philosophy in college. How fucked is the current situation? <laughs> like on a, on a scale of like kind of fucked to Hitler, where are we and like what do we really need to be paying attention to? It's quite fucked. <laughs> um, and the things we need to pay attention to I think are twofold. One is, is within the framework that we've got just making sure that, that the republic survives. And that means its own set of disciplines around not being so choked up on our own outrage of whatever happened yesterday that we forget to plan for what's going to happen in a week or six months. And at the same time, there have to be some framework transforming activities. Because the, the way that our democracy itself has been skewed is a threat to the republic. And we've got to not only acknowledge that, but we've also got to recognize that what's on the line right now is that the idea that you make decisions based on the truth or on evidence has gone from being a universally accepted assumption to a politically contested idea. And that means that the enlightenment itself <laughs> is under attack. I mean, never mind getting Democrats elected off. We've got to worry about protecting the enlightenment. That's what it's come to. Now, the good news is, historically, this has been a very robust and re resilient country. Well, it was only 150 years ago that half this country broke off and declared war against the other half, and we got through that. 
So at the end of the day, I'm still an optimist about America, but uh, I would say this is probably the worst shape we've been in in terms of the condition of the Republic. Well, and also the, the last time that the executive branch and the courts actually like refused to accommodate each other was when Lincoln was detaining prisoners. So it's literally been since the Civil War yeah. that we're now at the point we're at where we are that close to the court saying, hey, Customs and Border Patrol, you can't do that. And them saying, go fuck yourself. And them saying, fine, send in the US Marshals and arrest the Customs Officer. And the Justice Department saying, go fuck yourself. And then the Constitution doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I mean, this is, the, we're, we're on the, the edge of a constitutional crisis. And yet, like just talking about how bad it is and investing a lot of energy in describing the problem, we don't have time for that. Uh, we've got to find short-term and long-term solutions. And I think that in our political context, there are some measures that are available to us. Again, fewer than I'd like because of these structural problems in our democracy. We've got to pay attention to that. But there are things we can do right now. For example, there are some moderates still in <laughs> politics who are actually susceptible to pressure. Republican moderates. Yeah, <laughs> not many. Uh, but there are some. And we have to force them to make a decision whether they're going to follow an unpopular and unhinged president off a cliff simply because they're Republicans, or whether they're gonna stand up for something more important. And we need to establish a level of accountability for the choices they make between now and each passing election when it comes to how they're gonna handle that. So if you, if you were A, running the DNC and magically had like unlimited resources, looking just at now, like how would you accomplish that goal of, you know, because at the end of the day, like Trump's nominees have to get through the Senate, like how do you, put a fire under the ass of some of these kind of maybe sort of swing Republicans. Yeah, I mean, the, look, the, the short-term answer, the way to scratch the itch is making sure that we continue the mobilization that's going on. You look at the Women's March, which is important, not just in its scale and scope, but in its style. I think this is the thing that's overlooked. Um, you know, angry liberals don't really win hearts and minds, uh, at least not where I'm from. <laughs> um, I, I didn't win, I didn't get 80% of the vote in my reelection by being angry. I also didn't get 80% of the vote by being ideologically centrist. What was beautiful about the Women's March was it showed a way to be fierce about our values, and at the same time, at the end of the day, come off as, as happy warriors. Our Women's March in South Bend, and I gotta tell you how much it means that three or 4,000 people in little old South Bend uh, gathered in front of the theater. And then at a certain point, the Broadway show at the theater let out, it was Cinderella. You got little <laughs> kids in dresses, like mixing it up with people in the, in the, in the, the pussy hats. And, and uh, um, it was just a beautiful community celebration that at the same time had a very serious moral core. And so we've got to make sure that there's grassroots mobilization that continue and accelerate between now and the next election. We've got to make sure that we're wiring that up to the dialogue about what's happening in politics. And at the same time, we've got to recognize that uh, even though what scratches the itch is the kind of immediate, We've got to be laying a patient and disciplined plan out that's going to worry about things like, uh, and, and things that I'll be here asking for support for uh, later on if I'm DNC chair, things like investing in the next generation, which perversely Republicans have done a lot better than we have from internships to, uh, uh, to uh, intellectual programs. But yeah, if you're a Capitol Hill intern and you're a Republican, some foundation is funding you a stipend. If you're a Democrat, you're... You're telling me about this spreadsheet. I thought that was a wonderful image. Oh yeah, that's how we survived. I mean, I was a Senate intern, and, and uh, um, there were two ways you survived. One was this spreadsheet that circulated, that, that cross-tabulated all the happy hours where you get like cheeseburgers for two bucks. So if you wanted like uh, on Wednesday, a burger-related happy hour in the Adams Morgan neighborhood, it would tell you how to do it. Um, the, the other thing was uh, you, would, you would compete to, to have the duty of going through the senator's invitations so that you would know when, like, you know, the shrimp council is, is having a, a barbecue event. Uh, and then you'd show up in your suit looking like you were carrying a note to somebody important. And that's how you'd eat. 
right? So, so this job of DNC chair, it's actually, I think this is the first time people have really paid attention in at least quite a while. Yeah. What is this job that you're actually running for? So it's not a job that, that is well understood. It's fundamentally about running campaigns and winning elections. It's not the same as running for president. It's not about policy. Uh, and it's not the same as running for leader of the left, which uh, I think a lot of people wanted DNC to be. But it is an opportunity to call the tune for the resistance, <laughs> to establish a tone and a message, to call the country and the party to our higher values. And then just in terms of mechanics, to be a resource for state and local party organizations to provide infrastructure on everything from payroll to data, which is gonna be a big, I don't know how many of you have followed the emerging coverage of Cambridge Analytica and the role that some uh, actually remarkably sophisticated data work on the other side of the aisle might have played. Uh, making sure we're keeping up on that sort of thing. Cybersecurity, I mean, a lot of just blocking and tackling under the hood basics so the Democratic candidates can go out and run win in elections. And what is, uh, what is this election like that you're in right now, and how do you win? So the election that I'm in basically is uh, a nationwide campaign for student council. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, 57 states and territories. I mean, I was on a conference call with Saipan not long ago, uh, all, you know, all the way down to, you know, we were in Texas the other day, we'll be in Detroit in a couple days. Um, there's 447 people who actually vote. Uh, most members of Congress, for example, don't get to vote on this. It's uh, state party chairs and vice chairs and, and a handful of activists who are on the DNC. Uh, the job of me and all of my competitors running for DNC chair is to reach out to these activists, offer a proactive agenda for how we're going to rebuild the party going forward. And then there will be a big meeting in uh, late February in Atlanta, I think it's the 25th. Uh, there will be a vote and whoever gets a majority is the next DNC chair. And so who, who are you running against? How do you distinguish yourself and how do you win? So uh, there's a big field. Uh, I'd say the top three candidates are myself, uh, a member of Congress, and a former cabinet secretary. I'm trying to differentiate myself by saying, look, if, if we want to reach out to the next generation, uh, why not put the millennial in? If we're trying to figure out how we lost touch with uh, rural and, and, and Rust Belt America, put in a guy from Indiana. Uh, if you want to uh, be smarter about cyber and data, put in a guy who's got uh, military intelligence training and cybersecurity. Uh, if you want to recognize the fact that the answers for our party are not gonna come from Washington, put in somebody who doesn't get up in the morning and go to an office in Washington. Uh, that's how we're differentiating ourselves. And uh, the message uh, seems to be catching fire, but uh, uh, we've got a very short runway, about three and a half weeks, to get that to a majority of the votes. And so, fast forward two years, you've thankfully been elected DNC chair. What does the party look like? Two things have happened. One is that the party is nimble enough that we've run and won in elections, not just uh, Congress and Senate, which is gonna be a real challenge because of the map, but also uh, the, the less sexy and very, very important state and local elections. That's one thing that will have happened. The other will be, instead of lurching from election to election, we'll feel like we're actually executing a plan and that we've built groundwork and had the discipline even to say no to some tactically uh, short-term appealing things in order to actually build a long-term runway for the next generation of talent to rise and win so that we don't feel like we're trying to defend uh, the foundations of the republic itself. We're just back to trying to get our policies and our candidates through. And just to give you a free minute as mayor of South Bend, what do you want the tech community to know about opportunities in South Bend, Indiana? Come to South Bend. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, February is not when we put our best face forward, um, <laughs> unless you're into adventure travel, but um, you can still enjoy it. I mean, the thing about South Bend is we have this knack for taking what we already have and fashioning something new out of it. I mean, an example of this is this, uh, uh, what, what I enjoy calling the Silicon Prairie effort. So uh, on acreage that used to belong to Studebaker and has a lot of factories torn down, we now have data analytics companies that have emerged because uh, when they were laying the fiber, the internet, as 
everybody here, I'm sure, knows, and, and a lot of people don't think about much. Uh, and the cloud, you know, that's a physical thing, right? They've got to go somewhere. And the fiber followed the railway and, and highway right away, which went through our town for industrial reasons. So just at the moment when it seemed like there was no utility in an acre of land uh, alongside a railway with three unused power substations next to it, somebody figured out that a place with cheap power, high fiber, and cold weather, it's actually a great place to put in data centers. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of intellectual property coming out of the university, which we're finally uh, seeing the value in as we wire up what's going on at the university to the city. And we're redefining what it means to be a college town by treating the students not just as warm bodies and we're worried about their bike lanes and coffee shops and whether we've got to bust their parties, um, but we're actually engaging them at the level of the substance of the work that they do. Have you busted any student parties yourself? Uh, not personally. <laughs> <laughs> um. So tell us a little more about, um, you know, we, we've, we've talked about, you know, one of the things the Republicans did really well is, I mean, starting in like the 60s, yeah. when they just, they had ideologically gotten their asses handed to them and sort yeah. of Keynesian, sort of New Deal era really was like the de facto. I mean, you had people like Eisenhower, you know, saying Social Security is untouchable. Right. And then fast forward and we're, we're living in this sort of Reagan era defined world where Democrats are simply reacting. Like, you know, people forget Obamacare is an idea that came out of the Heritage Foundation on the right as a conservative response to what Hillary Care was trying to do. How, you know, how did we get our asses so badly kicked? Like, every time I meet a, a young Republican, you know, they've got their copy of Hayek, they've got their kind of foundation, and it may not sound like it matters, but consistently from ideology, all the way to policy. Like you ask any Republican, it's like small government, traditional values, strong military. You ask Democrats, it's like you get a hundred different answers because you've got the environmentalists and the union guy right. and et cetera. So like what happened? Well, I mean, you're right. That lends itself to a bumper sticker. And what's our bumper sticker going to be? You know, big government, no values and weak military. Like we, <laughs> we've got to make sure that we got to make sure we're tying up what we have to say to some values that make sense. We used to do it. Uh, we were doing it so well that Republicans felt the need to erect an elaborate think tank infrastructure, an ideological infrastructure that backed their political infrastructure. They spent the 60s, 70s, and 80s doing it. In the 90s, it paid off to where even a Democratic president was doing what used to be thought of as Republican things. Now we are in a world where the center itself has moved to the right, and we're in this crazy hall of mirrors where the president of the United States is not a liberal, not a conservative, and not a moderate. <laughs> so this is the moment where we have to get back to the relationship between our policies and our politicians and our values and our ideas. And I think it's there. We just have to, we have to uh, lay it out. And we have to talk about our decisions in terms of our values rather than in terms of the Republicans. And this is the great danger of Trump, right? He's so distracting, he's so fascinating, and he's so dangerous that we spend all our time talking about him and folks at home are saying nobody's talking about me. We've got to make sure that we are talking in terms of our values first. And then when he does something, or anybody does something, that is offensive to those values. And this is why it was really important to see how this community had a fire lit under it by the immigration action, right? Um, that we're talking about the values and about the human beings that affects. We are inclined, just for, for whatever reason, to talk in abstractions and concepts. And actually, as strong as we have to be in our values, we should never forget to talk about how it cashes out in people's everyday lives. And, and at the same time, um, do that in a way that isn't, yes, you micro-target sometimes and you speak to constituencies where they are. But another thing that, that I think conservatives have done effectively is they have a message that makes sense to their different parts of their co coalition uh, across the board. We tend to speak to the parts of our coalition one at a time. And so we'll often say something to one group, we'd actually be a little embarrassed to have repeated to another group. 
That's how we got into a lot of uh, silos of identity politics. And I think generationally there's an opportunity to get out of that. You know, I, I spent Thanksgiving morning in a deer blind in northern Michigan with my boyfriend's father. That, that's not a sentence that, that people used to be able to say. Um, so some of the assumptions that we attach to people's identity groups and lifestyles uh, aren't really going to work now anyway. Uh, it's a great moment to get back to the basic values that make us Democrats in the first place. So we're, we're almost out of time. Um, how can people, if they want to get involved and help out what your, uh, your race for DNC chair, how can they do that? So our website, PeteForDNC.com, has a more specific account of what we're trying to do. It's got a platform as well as some, some materials and info. Um, it's also got a way to contribute financially, which we're always looking for support to get our message out. Uh, and if you happen to know anybody who's on the DNC, any one of these 447 members, uh, some of whom are, are, are right here in this area, uh, but you never know who in this room might know the vice chair of the Idaho Democratic Party. Um, <laughs> Uh, reach out to them. Uh, and then uh, we're also trying to amplify on social media our account of how this actually works because we're trying not only to uh, run and win uh, for, for this race for DNC chair, but also to model what it is like to be a happy warrior. This is a season for happy warriors who are, are fierce in protecting our values, um, but also have a tone that makes people want to get on board and do what we're doing. Uh, and I think the opportunity there is, is at hand if we're willing to jump in and take it. And Pete will be around for a while during lunch if you want to say hi. Um, thank you guys so much for, for all the time and attention. Really appreciate it. And in talking to people, I, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for, you know, saving the republic, which seems like a pretty good thing to, be, to care about. Um, so thanks a lot. Thanks, Pete. Thanks a lot, Jim.